0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Lopsided Free podcast. This is your (laughs) weekly debate of all of the biggest and best football games, stories, transfers and much, much more. As always, I am your host, James Gray, and I'm joined by my two football intrepid co-hosts, Mr. James Arnold and Mr. Thomas Hill. Boys, how are we doing this week? How good does it feel
1: to have football back on the weekend? Uh, it's lovely. Yeah, I don't mind the international break, but it's always good to get club football back again. Saturday and Sunday sorted. There's only one game on Sunday and yet all I did was still sit on my sofa just waiting for it. So yeah, good for it to be back.
2: Yeah, it was a good good weekend of football, wasn't it? Eight games on a Saturday, which was quite weird. Feels like it was all over quite quickly. But then like, yeah, now we've had two games over two days,
0: which is spread it out a bit. Seems a bit ridiculous, but yeah. Mm-hmm it was weird it was even weirder having a super sunday with just one game on at four o'clock by the way as well that just didn't make sense but there you go football is back we've got plenty to talk about and as always we would love you listeners to get involved with our debate and you can do so by following our social medias whether that be on twitter using our twitter handle at lopsided free or you can find us on facebook just by simply typing into your search bar the lopsided free podcast As I say, we've got plenty to get stuck into, so let's get on with the episode. And there's probably no better place to get started than a certain Cristiano Ronaldo's debut on Saturday, Manchester United versus Newcastle. Of course, it couldn't have went any other way. He scored two goals on his debut, 36 years old. They were all writing, well, they weren't, but there were some that were writing him off. He scored twice on his debut, as I said, fantastic performance all round from not just Ronaldo, but the team. Don't want to big it up too much because it is still very early days, but what what did you both think of cr7's debut but also the result in general
1: first of all i'd just like to contest the idea that lots of people were writing him off. I think <laughs> that's, that's I'm not sure I why it. He, maybe that's the united hat thinking it's all against you there but <laughs> yeah i think most people probably expected him to get on the score sheet and i don't think there was a lot of surprise how it turned out kind of soft goals i think you could argue but he always seems to find a way doesn't he
2: Yeah, I think on that point, both goals, you would definitely expect him to score. Like the first one, especially, it was a tap-in. I know you have to be in the right place to score them, and I think that's something he's always had in his career, like that striker's instinct. So it's good to see that things like that are still there. I do think he will score quite a few this season. I just think the reason we didn't like select him for top scorer or anything like that was more his age, and there are better players who are younger. And I don't think fit is fair, but maybe more able.
1: For me, I think it was just, I picked Lukaku. I just think Chelsea are a better team. That's pretty much the only reason I went for Lukaku over Ronaldo. I think there's probably not a lot to split them in terms of their goal-scoring ability right now. I mean, obviously, Ronaldo's career puts him ahead of Lukaku, but... Yeah. Yeah, yeah what was fair. what was really nice to see, actually, beyond Ronaldo, was just the fans' reaction to him when he first came on the pitch, and obviously when he scored the goal, and there was that massive kind of sea from the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> it was just good to have stuff like that back as well
0: iconic moment that's what that was
1: kind of leading into a topic we'll cover later
0: on but did either of you put him into your fantasy team out of interest
1: there's no way I could afford him with Lukaku already in there and given I went for Lukaku as top scorer that would have been suicidal to take him out
2: yeah I I didn't bother with him to be honest I think he was always going to score goals but I, I don't know like he's the most expensive player in the game there's probably other players who I think are better priced so it's a difficult one isn't it
0: all of the focus, obviously, was on Manchester United, but I also want to touch on Newcastle because they were, if I remember rightly, they were the only team that we all predicted to go down in our predictions episode last week. Obviously been a difficult start. No win as of yet. The only point they've picked up was against Southampton in a two-all draw. It's been a difficult start. Steve Bruce has also got the fans being back in the stadium to contend with. We know how hostile St James's Park can be as a stadium for away teams, but also for their own team as well. Do you hold much hope out for Steve Bruce? Bruce in the short term whether he'll be able to keep his job for much longer no not at all I think he has had it against him because I
2: think like Mike Ashley especially this season like the investment in that team was virtually non-existent like other than Joe Willock they haven't really brought anybody in it was always going to be a hard job at Newcastle I think he's done quite a good job overall to be fair I just think it's a case of time's running out now and the team just isn't good enough and I think that's all it is
1: I think at their best, they've got enough firepower to stay up. But obviously, Wilson's injured at the moment. He's out for a little while. And I think Arnold mentioned it in one of the other podcasts. Some of their other attackers do have slightly sketchy injury records. I think a lot's going to depend on them. I'm not a huge fan of Steve Bruce as a manager. But I do kind of agree with Arnold. I don't mean, think he's done a terrible job. I think the lack of spending is definitely a lot more to blame than he is for Newcastle's failures. No, definitely.
0: One of the leading lines going into this game on the weekend was the fact that it was being played at three o'clock on a Saturday. And that kind of brought about, again, this debate surrounding the blackout of 3pm fixtures in England and Scotland. It's, for anyone that doesn't know, it's a UEFA statute, which basically allows any association in Europe to decide for two and a half hours on Saturday or Sunday during which transmission of football they essentially want to block broadcast of so for england and scotland they obviously choose between 2 45 and 5 15 on saturday afternoon slash early evening for anyone wants to sort of find out a bit more about it, it is quite a dense topic i very much recommend there's a very good twitter thread written by a gentleman called dale johnson who's of espn if you want to check out a bit more of that i'll leave a link to it but it's one of those things i think because of the nature of english football and particularly the english football pyramid it's been in place really since broadcasters have been able to televised football and I guess the main argument for why it is still in place even today is that it's there to protect football attendances throughout the football pyramid rather than at the top elite level of the Premier League so you're talking about say League One, League Two going lower to the conference and even say for example the Southern League and the Midlands League what do you two think about it? Do you think it's outdated? Do you think it's something that
1: actually is there to preserve so as I say the attendances of these lower league clubs? It's a difficult one. Personally, I'm not someone who follows lower leagues a lot. So it can be frustrating for me at times. You know, there are obviously some games that I'd rather watch. But that being said, I do have a lot of respect for the protection of the lower leagues and the football that's played there. I think it is clearly hugely important. I think there could be potential ways to go about it. You know, I think arguably if the Premier League were able to show more matches, they could use some of that extra revenue, funnel it down to the lower league to kind of protect them in that sense. But yeah, I think as frustrating as it is and as weird as it can be, just a little strange tangent here, but I was going to watch the um, napoli Juventus game in Syria, which started at five o'clock on Saturday. And I didn't realise that it applied to stuff abroad as well. So I turned on, even though it said that the match had started, it was showing some other programme at five o'clock and it didn't start the coverage until quarter past five because of the blackout. And by that time, literally, just as it started, Juventus had only just scored a minute beforehand. It's just a very weird situation. James, what are your thoughts on it?
2: I can definitely see the argument for keeping it in place because I think attending a game is something that gives people that love of football. I think the age groups that are actually affected by it do tend to be like younger people and older because I would sort of assume like a lot of people between the ages of say 18 and 30 I know we don't necessarily but are like out on Saturdays playing football anyway if that makes sense. So it shouldn't really affect that demographic. Probably does a bit but you know. I think what would be interesting is if we had more of a Bundesliga system and that's where each set of games is on at different times and I'm not suggesting maybe something as extreme as that where like all Prem games are played at one time on a Saturday or something like that but more maybe that all the other leagues are played at a similar time and then the Prem is played completely separately so like no 3 o'clock Prem games or something like that because the other thing is I feel like we do have enough time on like a Saturday where they could be like stretched at 8 o'clock or something like that which was what was going on throughout COVID when they wanted to show every individual game. And that really worked, to be honest, because I think eight o'clock is actually an ideal time for a kickoff on a Saturday. It's when everyone's going out. It's a good way to like, start the night, have a couple of points and then go from there. But yeah, it does just
0: seem an imperfect system at the moment. I would agree with you and I think the fear is that if they were to remove the blackout altogether were attendances to drop no one knows of course it's one of those hypothetical situations you won't know until if it is ever removed I think the fear in general is that if it was to be taken away the attendances would drop and then there's no going back at that point which I understand the reasons for as we say British football in general is unique from other leagues you take the championship for example it's what in the top five most attended leagues in the world it beats Ligue 1 as a top league, for instance, in France. So I understand there are reasons in place to protect it and protect the integrity of the competition, but how wholeheartedly I don't know whether the blackout does actually uphold attendances in the lower leagues, it's an interesting one. As I say, it's a hypothetical situation, but it really would just depend on if and when it were ever to be removed. All right, we'll hold that debate there. Another story that kind of emerged in the past week, came out on last Thursday, is FIFA's proposal to host a biennial World Cup, and it's being led by the former Arsenal manager, of course, who is now FIFA head of global development. It is Arsene Wenger. It's essentially proposing to hold a World Cup every two years rather than every four years. Pretty self-explanatory. In a sense, it would mean that there's a major international tournament being held each summer. We've seen some support come out from the African Football Association, some of the Caribbean associations, and we've also seen some sort of rebuke against it from UEFA, UEFA's president, Alexander Seferin, and also the South American Football Association, I'm interested to know from both of you, are either of you in favour of holding a biennial World Cup what do you both make of the proposals themselves? James, I'll come to you first on this. To be honest, I'm someone who's completely against it. The
2: World Cup as a prospect is a spectacle and it's something that where it's every four years, it has that much more value to it. So like say it was held every year, I think that would just be pointless, you know? What's the point of that? That's basically my whole view. I can see why it would mean more to some of these lower countries if they were able to qualify for a World Cup. And one being on more often, that gives them more of a chance. But I'm not sure it's as much of an achievement then, is it?
1: I think I'd contest whether it does even really give them more of a chance. I mean, they're not changing the qualification format, if anything, and I wouldn't agree with this idea either, but expanding the World Cup further would give them more of a chance of qualifying than just doing it more often. I mean, we've already had over 20 World Cups and some of these countries have never even come close to qualifying. I don't think holding it more frequently is going to give the likes of India or Namibia or someone like that a greater chance of qualifying than they usually do. It's interesting, I am also... strongly against the ideas. And I think having read a couple of articles on it, all of the reasons they've given in terms of potential pros of doing it more frequently, so giving chances to smaller nations and protecting players and making matches more meaningful, all of them, in my opinion, do the complete opposite. They make things absolutely worse. They talk about making games more meaningful, but by doing it more often, surely that makes it much less meaningful. And again, if they're adding in extra matches with lesser quality teams in these tournaments, I mean, we already know that they're Expanding it to 48 teams, is it really more meaningful to play a World Cup match against Burkina Faso than it is to play qualifiers (laughs) against European nations? And also, in terms of exposure, I know for the next World Cup 2026, it's going to be 48 teams, 16 groups of three. Some of these small teams, they play two matches, they're inevitably going to be eliminated and they go home. So they'd be much better served, in my opinion, playing more in their own regional tournaments, where they've actually got a chance of having some success. I think it's much more important to do work in these nations and with the football associations to improve the quality of the domestic football and to improve the efficiency and kind of money sensibility of the confederations that's a much harder job but it's going to be a much more effective job of actually leveling the playing field than just having more world cups bigger world cups
2: yeah, I think from my point of view, I think it is purely for the money that they're doing this. I think it's almost a bit similar to uh, an international global super league or European super league. So I think from a fan's viewpoint, I don't think this will actually go anywhere. And I think that fans hold too much power for it to go further than just an idea. Because like, as soon as they like say, we're going to do this, there will be almost revolts. And then the countries will just go back on their word if they do say, like we want to do this.
1: Yeah, just quickly, one thing, one of the proposals I did somewhat like was the idea of having kind of less windows, but bigger windows for the international breaks in order to play a larger number of qualifiers. So maybe you only have two international breaks in which to do the whole qualifying section or something, condense it down a bit. But it does probably mean less traveling overall for the players. It's not every month having to go out to the international team and being dragged away and breaking up the club season. So I could potentially get on board with the idea of that, but you don't need to add an extra World Cup in and an extra tournament here and there. Just allow it to keep going as it is. As Arnold says, I think it's pretty much all for the extra money. But I think that idea is one that could potentially be good for the players' well-being.
0: I believe the proposal actually says, and I agree with what you've just said there as well, Tom, it's taking away the international breaks we have throughout the season and condensing it all into one window, they're saying sort of within October time, so less qualifying games, but they're all played within that particular month. And then there is no, as we've just recently, a September international break in October, November, and then one in March. So I could get behind that. I mean, taking on board everything you've both just said there, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a brief second. And let's say, for instance, yeah, you are doing it for the money but you're doing it for the money because increased exposure increased participation in these tournaments gives you greater prize money which then means that you're going to be able to invest it back into your leagues back into the infrastructure of these countries to help improve your own domestic game etc of course Europe and South America are going to oppose it and by all accounts yeah the proposals are probably going to get hit back because those are the two continents that hold most of the power with regards to football but how can we ever expect other continents other countries areas of the world to improve and be able to ultimately challenge some of these sort of superpowers in football unless something does change maybe this is the right way maybe it isn't I'm as I say I'm just playing devil's advocate here
1: yeah, I think it's a good point. For me, it just comes down to I don't even think it would be an effective way to help those countries out. I think there are other ways. I think it's, it's a lot more, there are a lot more systematic errors and problems in a lot of these countries. I mean, it's hardly surprising that the biggest footballing powers are mostly European and are mostly a hell of a lot richer than the others. I think that's more the issue going on as opposed to anything else
2: on that point of money filtering down to these lesser countries that are now having a more of a chance say if this went ahead. Do you think that would necessarily come to fruition? Because I think there's also an argument that if the World Cup is on more often and it does become less of a spectacle, that people will be less likely to watch these smaller games and then you'll get it as a similar thing to say like the Champions League and stuff like that or like the Premier League, the distribution of wealth, where the teams who are Making the finals and the semi-finals every year will say, actually, we're the ones, you know, earning all this viewership. Why is the money being spread out so drastically between all these countries? Do they deserve it? And I know that is very much a harsh view. I just think money talks and these countries will just demand something unfair.
1: I agree, absolutely. I think in the World Cup, clearly some matches are more interesting on face value than others, but a lot of people are willing to tune into even the very smallest matches in the World Cup because it comes around so infrequently. You see teams that you never really see. So it's interesting to kind of tune in and see something a bit different. Whereas if you did it every two years or whatever it is, and you're having more and more teams every time, it kind of, you know, are you going to tune in every couple of years to watch the likes of Australia? And Tunisia and that, in the same way that you would have it's only every four years. I don't think so. I kind of agree. I think you would get it with the Champions League. No one particularly tunes in to the smallest matches in the Champions League. They more tune in for the bigger clubs. And I think it would be the same with a more frequent World Cup.
0: The only thing I would say is I would assume that regardless of attendances to those games, those countries would expect the broadcasting revenue to be substantial, significant enough to justify holding a tournament more often than every four years. I think the way football's going, it's only getting bigger and better, isn't it? So the prize money ultimately, regardless of, I don't know, if it's Panama versus Ethiopia, let's say, for example, regardless of if 100 people or 50,000 people turn up to it, they'll still be expecting a significant amount of money off from it because it's the World Cup and because of the broadcast interest on a global scale it's a very deep topic to get into i think we've done quite well there so we'll park that for one moment as i said at the start of the episode anyone wants to get involved please do so on our social medias i'm sure we've given some opinions there that some of you will be disagreeing with so please do get involved where possible we're now going to move on to other headlines that occurred across the weekend in the premier league and there's probably no better place to start after the united game really than crystal palace versus tottenham in Interesting dynamic going into the game. Crystal Palace went into the weekend without a win. Spurs were top of the league. Nuno had just been nominated manager of the month. And as we so often see, the curse of the manager of the month strikes. Odson Edward got two goals on his debut. Fastest ever debut goal scorer in Premier League history with a goal in 28 seconds. Zaha, Conor Gallagher were also both very impressive again. I don't want to big you up, Tom, but Mystic Tom, well, you know, you said in the previous episode they had the best trance window. What's
1: going on? It uh, certainly complimentary timing, wasn't it? I mean, <laughs> we'll have to wait and see whether it works out in the long term. But yeah, I mean, even I couldn't have predicted how quickly Edward would open his debut, that's for sure. Tottenham were terrible, is worth noting. And I do think the red card completely turned the game on its head, really. A ridiculous red card, by the way. I mean, not not in terms of the giving, it definitely was a red card. But how you can make the decision to go in for a challenge like that and get yourself sent off for a second yellow is just extraordinary
2: yeah I have to agree I think the red card was the pivotal moment in this game but I do think Palace were probably the better team beforehand anyway I think Spurs just looked like they lacked something up front which is interesting because Kane was obviously back now I was saying to the people I live with if Tottenham are going to win this game it's going to be 1-0 and I was jokingly saying I wouldn't be surprised if Spurs went the whole season and won 38 games by (laughs) (laughs) 1-0 because they are just that sort of team under Nuno but I think Palace yeah were very good Conor Gallagher in that cam role he was playing a bit more deep under Sam Aldas at West Brom I suppose but he looks like a very good player in, in those attacking positions and to be honest I was a bit surprised at how good he actually was in those positions because I think he has played there before but I've just not seen it so yeah he was very impressive.
0: What are we both, I know it's early days, but what are we both saying is the ceiling for Palace this year? Obviously, at the start of the season, everyone was concerned about the inexperience of Vieira, a lot of new players, a lot of young players being brought into the squad. But the signs at the moment seem to be that they're settling in reasonably well. Obviously, a heck of a long way to go until the end of the season. But what do we think could be the ceiling for Palace in terms of what they can achieve this year? James? I think they're one of these teams
2: where they have quite a high ceiling, but they also have quite a a low floor, if that makes sense. So whereas like Newcastle, Southampton, I wouldn't expect them to get much above 15th or somewhere like that. I think Palace could easily get 11th, 12th, but I also think they could, if things went wrong, get 19th or 18th. So it is, yeah, it's a difficult one.
1: Yeah, I think 11th-12th is probably a pretty fair ceiling for Palace in the best-case scenario. I'd expect them to finish around 14th-15th kind of position, which I think wouldn't be terrible for Vieira's first season.
0: Moving on from that then, we come to, I say this tongue in cheek, a relegation battle game kind of (laughs) on the weekend, Arsenal versus Norwich. Arsenal fans, please take that with jest. We've made some remarks in our past episodes. We were only joking. Don't take anything too seriously. But anyway, Arsenal won 1-0 against Norwich. It probably wasn't as convincing as what I was expecting anyway, in so many respects. I think Norwich, in all fairness to them in the games that they've played so far this season, have showed that they're certainly not going to be as much. The pushovers, what they were two years ago when they first came up, got the goal for Aubameyang. What did you think of the game from a Norwich point of view,
1: Tom? it was another one where I didn't think the game was terrible it's it's a bit of a weird one obviously Arsenal aren't quite the same level as Liverpool and City so we weren't expecting them to get blown away in quite the same way and they didn't but I think the trouble for Norwich even looking forward now is they've got Watford at home next they're still pointless Watford I think have three points at the moment Norwich really probably have to win that and certainly they can't afford to lose it they've obviously been unlucky with the kind of scheduling so far of the matches you know they've had four Four hard games at the start of the season. On paper, you wouldn't expect them to really take anything from any of those. But now they come into what is you know, four games into the season, a relegation crunch match for them already against Watford. I think the pressure is going to be huge on next weekend. I
0: think it's fair to say with regards to Arsenal, it was a huge win for the club, huge win obviously for Mikel Arteta as well. They've got quite a favourable run of fixtures coming up over the next seven, eight games. How important is it, James, that they make these games count and they turn them into points?
2: Yeah, 100%. They need European football next season. Otherwise, I think they're just going to go further and further backwards. Certainly, they've got the players to win these games. And I think it's fair to say they have the squad capable of finishing sixth. I don't think maybe further than that, but sixth, they could definitely do. The thing is, I don't think they were that convincing again against a Norwich team who they should really be beating. And I think that's going to be the problem. A couple players did stand out. Hardy, when he came on, looked very good. And I think if they can get him into the team regularly, then they will be a lot better off but it's just the same old story of Arsenal at the moment and I think that's why there is worries around how well they are going to do
1: I do think the return of Aubameyang is hugely important for them he's not quite the player that he was a few years ago I think he's lost a little something but he's still a top-class striker I think we hadn't really considered it in the first couple of games of the season which obviously didn't go so well for them but I think having him up top with kind of talisman for them is going to be very important to them doing well this season
0: Obviously, one of the bigger criticisms of Arsenal at the start of the season has been defence. On Saturday, we saw pretty much a new defence altogether. We saw Tommy Asu make his debut. Kieran Tierney started alongside Ben White and Gabriel Mahales. What do you think of that defence? Do you think that's something that they could build on and create a solid base off moving forward? I think it speaks for itself That last
2: season They were something like The fourth best defence in the league So clearly like The management of that defence Is there And I think Ben White Is an improvement On what they had last year So I think there is the potential That they could be quite solid I don't know They just never convince me In any part of the pitch Is the problem I just think the bigger teams Will roll them over I think another point I want to make is that I think if Arsenal Play any of the Traditional top six So Tottenham Man U Man City Liverpool Chelsea I think this could be a season where I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't win any of those 10 games against them
1: It's an interesting one with Arsenal's defence I like all of those players individually but it's just when it comes together they're all very young I think they're all under 25 I wouldn't call Leno a really commanding goalkeeper behind them and they've obviously had problems in the midfield in front of it as well I think when Jack is not in there there's a real lack of leadership and even then he can be a bit temperamental at times so I think it's just the defence coming together there we've obviously criticised Arsenal before for buying young but not really having any established pros to pull it all together so that's going to be the question this season
2: on on Leno obviously Ramsdale did start at the weekend as well does that have some implications for the future
0: depends on who the Arsenal fan is that you ask, I think. (laughs) I think that goes back to the amount of money that they paid for him originally from Sheffield United. Anyway, moving on, Liverpool had what turned out to be quite a comfortable afternoon at Elland Road yesterday. They beat Leeds 3-0. Obviously, the game was marred slightly by the injury, the significant injury to Harvey Elliott, who it turns out has dislocated his ankle. He's due to have surgery on it later this week. He's had a good couple of games at the start of the season, Tom. I mean, how big a miss do you think he could be you've got the options to back him up but he did look like he was really settling into a good run of form
1: yeah it's a real shame I mean obviously I don't think it's a disaster for Liverpool they you know he's kind of new addition to the squad so it's not like they're losing out on something that they were reliant on beforehand that being said he did provide something a bit different and also just on a personal level for him having just broke into Liverpool team and we don't know how long he's going to be out for it could be a huge setback for him I really hope he comes back strong from it because we've seen not just of Liverpool but with other teams as well with young players getting injured so early on in their careers at a big club it can be very hard to get back in and get going again afterwards someone like Danny Ings I remember at Liverpool I thought looked quite promising got himself injured and it never worked out after that so hopefully it works out a bit better for Javier. Elliott.
0: You predicted them to win the league this year James they've had a great start to the season what did you make of Liverpool's performance against Leeds yesterday?
2: It was utterly dominant, to be honest, wasn't it? They didn't look like losing or drawing that game at any point. And if anything, they should have won by more. I think Mane, honestly, he could have had five or six that game. The amount of chances he wasted was unbelievable. Yeah, certainly the Harvey Elliott incident did put a bit of a downer on it from a Liverpool's fan's perspective, but they've definitely got the options to cover that position. Maybe Curtis Jones could have another run in the team. I was a bit shocked by the scenes on TV when it happened. I thought he'd broken his ankle. And I think it's quite lucky that he's only dislocated it, which is still a terrible injury. But, you know, a break is something you don't tend to do well when you come back from it. I want to know what your thoughts are on the red card, because I think personally, whilst it was a dangerous challenge, I think it was just a bit unfortunate. One of those where maybe yellow is fair.
1: I think it's difficult to judge because we didn't get to see any replays for obvious reasons. On first glance, I thought it obviously ended badly, but it didn't look like a ridiculously dangerous challenge going into it. Certainly, if the injury hadn't have happened, even with him getting the ball, I know that isn't really the be-all and end-all for referees nowadays. It didn't look like more than the yellow to me, with the caveat that we only got to see it once.
0: I think for me, it didn't look like a red card at all.
1: The obvious comparison to make is,
0: who was it? Human Son, was it Human Son? And who- Andre Gomez. Yeah. I, I knew you were going to make that
2: comparison. <laughs> That's the one that was in my head, weirdly enough.
0: Yeah, similar incident, wasn't it? And I think it's exactly the same injury. I think he dislocated his ankle and potentially also broke something else. But no malice in the challenge. I think Struck was quite unlucky. I think it's one of those things in football where if it leads to a broken leg, it leads to a broken ankle. It's almost immediately deemed to be a red card challenge because you do just think, Well, surely if it's led to that kind of injury, it's got to be dangerous, right?
1: it's difficult though because where do you draw the line on that for example if two players go up for a header Mm. they both kind of fall one falls on the other guy and i don't know in an awkward angle and breaks his leg or breaks whatever i mean that's clearly completely unintentional so where does it kind of become you've done something dangerous that puts the players safety at risk and where does it become it's a complete accident you slipped on the turf or it was just a really like one in a million unfortunate angle i think that's if anything, the kind of the flip side to that argument. Yeah,
2: I think Tom's completely right with that, to be honest, because I think in normal life, you could do something by accident and hurt someone. That doesn't mean you've you've intended to hurt someone or something like that. But also, like, I don't want to see the game become something where everyone's avoiding going into these tackles and having a bit of aggression to their play just because they don't want to injure each other. I don't want to see players injuring each other, but equally, it's just a completely different game if everyone's mm. just...
1: It is an occupational hazard to a point. I mean, Strauss wasn't completely innocent because he does kind of come in from behind on Elliot and kind of hurts his leg round a bit. You can argue you can't tackle players from behind. And that's just a fact, even if you get the ball, but it does kind of get to a point where it's like, well, can you not slide tackle at all anymore? I mean, if you, yeah, if you slide in, obviously you don't have to go two feet off the ground. You don't have to, to necessarily bring two legs in or go over the ball or what have you, but it does get to a point where it's like, oh, well, you know, can you not slide tackle at all now? If you touch, the player kind of in any way is that increasing the risk of leading to injury it's just a very fine line it's very subjective I think is the problem it does kind of just come down to consequence but because sometimes you see pretty horrendous swings and they don't they don't make contacts they don't injure the player or what have you and they kind of get away with it and then you see a complete accident like the, the Son Heung Min one in particular and they, they get sent off for it I know I, well I think that got rescinded in the end but still
0: Yeah, it's one of those. And you raise a good point there, Tom, because I think serious injuries can occur in football completely by accident. I mean, it's a bit of a weird example to use, but you go back to last season, David Luiz and Raul Jimenez go up and head the same ball. Obviously, David Luiz has no intention of injuring, fracturing Raul Jimenez's skull, but it ends up happening. But it's not a red card. They've both gone to head the ball, if you know what I mean. I know that's a weird example to use, but what I'm trying to get is, as I say, severe injuries can occur in football without they're necessarily needing to be some form of wrongdoing yeah exactly with regards to a red card situation Chelsea also won 3-0 at the weekend probably a less convincing performance I think it's fair to say against Aston Villa considering the number of chances that Aston Villa had but they got the job done again against one of the sort of better lower to mid-table teams in the league what did we make of their performance? To be honest, I want to pick
2: one player out and say they had a fantastic game. And that's Edouard Mendy. Obviously signed last season and a lot of people didn't really know who he was. I knew of him, but it wasn't any detail, really. He's been fantastic since he's come into them. And on Saturday against Villa, he had another fantastic game and made a few goal-preventing saves. He's certainly proving his value. Obviously, UEFA goalkeeper of the year.
1: I think what's quite striking so far, not just on the Chelsea game, but the games in general so far this season, is how, I mean, we talked about it at the start of the season in our predictions, but how far ahead. These teams look, compared to the rest of the league, Chelsea didn't play well and Villa pulled out quite a good performance. Mendy obviously made some good saves, but like I still don't ever really feel like there was a lot of doubt that Chelsea were going to win that game. And you go back to Liverpool 1, they were completely dominant there. Newcastle are a lesser opposition compared to some of those other opponents, but they completely blew them away. As I say, yeah, Chelsea were not at all at the races, but they had a keeper who pulled out some excellent stops and you see the quality of Lukaku. I think Kovacic as well The commentators obviously pointed it out a lot in the match, but he had an absolutely fantastic game. That individual quality is really bringing those teams through now. And I think it's a little worrying in some ways how easy that top four might just pull away from everyone else this season. A good point to make actually
0: I think this season more than ever you're going to see the league decided between those games between the sort of top four top five teams and who can emerge victorious more often than not in them some of the other games we'll just go over them very quickly that occurred over the weekend Wolves finally got off the mark with their first win 2-0 away at Watford Seemed to miss a lot of chances again but they got the luck through the own goal Francisco Trincao had another good game what do we think of Wolves because they are an interesting team in a sense that they've got quite a good mix of of established international players. I guess, again, similar to what we were saying earlier about Palace, what do we think the ceiling is for them
1: this year in terms of if they can get that consistency together, what can they achieve? It's interesting. For me, I think it's changed a lot in the last couple of weeks. I wasn't really that optimistic about Wolves at the start of the season. They obviously didn't have a brilliant start, but particularly this week, I thought the attacking trio of Trincao, Traore and Jimenez looked really, really good. I mean, Jimenez, before he had that horrible injury last season, was one of the best strikers in the league. And I think there are a couple of moments this weekend where he looked right back to his best. Trincao, I agree. He had a really, really good game. Definitely one of the best young players at the start of this season and I mean Traore can be a bit rough around the edges can't he but he's just such a such a weapon when he gets going with the ball and I think they, they have a really solid base and they've had a really solid base for quite a while I think defensively there's not a lot of standout names but they are quite a solid team I think they've obviously got a new manager but the team shape and structure and the way they go about things has stayed pretty similar through a relatively consistent appointment in manager I think they could have quite a good footing to actually do reasonably well this season maybe push back into the top off wow.
2: Yeah, I, I think they've got a really good team to be honest. Tom mentions those attacking options. They've got two more on on the bench. Or I think Neto might be injured. I'm I'm not sure about that. But like obviously Pedro Neto is like a quality player as well. And then there's Daniel Podence. They have got some really good depth up front. I think as a whole team though, they are really like something. Nelson Semedo obviously was a bit of a surprise when he came from Barcelona last season. They've got a couple good options in left back now in Nori and Marcel, Marcel. Yeah, who got two assists in that game. And then defensively in central defences in. I always struggle to be convinced with them because a lot of their players are a bit interesting let's say and I mean like Connor Cody who started his career as a central midfielder for the Liverpool youth team and then has ended up as a centre-back for Wolves and Willie Bolly is another interesting player isn't he? (laughs) But I think actually Max Kilman, who is starting every game, he started every game this season, he looks very good as a young player and then there's Hoover who they got from Liverpool who could also be somebody for the future. So I think the signs are all good for Wolves. As far as their ceiling, I think they're probably a bit higher than Palace. Nothing spectacular, but I think maybe that ape sort of position would be something that they would be aiming for.
1: Yeah, I think they could knock on the European door without actually quite achieving that goal this season.
2: I think it's an interesting point because I think Leicester and West Ham have come on miles these past two seasons. So I think the teams that were there and thereabouts before
0: have got a very big chance to derail those two teams. I kind of almost brushed over it, and I think it's a result, well, for me anyway, that's kind of gone quietly under the radar this weekend. Man City obviously going away to Leicester, a team they've struggled at in the past couple of seasons, and winning 1-0. They've certainly improved since that 1-0 loss away at Spurs at the start of the season. Again, what did we make of the performance? Was there any notable points that either of you want to bring up?
1: I think it went under the radar for a reason. I don't think it was necessarily one of the more interesting games. I think City were very economical and efficient in the way they went about things. I've been a bit disappointed with Leicester at the start of the season. I know Man City are obviously a very tough opponent, but in all the games I've seen them so far this season, I feel like there is something a little bit missing. It's early days, yeah, and they have got some very good players, but they haven't really got me excited yet in the way that they did a lot last season.
2: No, I I think that's a really fair reflection on how they've done this season, to be honest. Because a lot of their players who were a bit flary last season and doing things potentially above their level have tailed off a bit now or got back to normal levels. So like Harvey Barnes was very good last season and we're yet to really see him reach those similar levels yet. I think they had a, a really good summer window. But again, none of those players have really featured yet and none of them have really done a lot yet. Ian Acho was obviously massively outperforming his expected goals last season. So that was always going to come back to reality. But yeah, they do look a bit less powerful than they were last season, I suppose.
1: I do think it's a fair point with signings. And I think that's a very much a case of it being early doors. They've made a few on paper quite good signings and they obviously haven't featured a lot yet. I think, as is always the case, it takes a little bit of time to, you know, have to trust to bring players in, especially when you've got a team of like Leicester who have good players already. I think, you know, they're understandably taking their time to, you know, feed these players into the Premier League and let them kind of feel it out first before throwing them in the deep end. Mm. So it could be interesting if some of those get firing, how it might change this season. It is
0: difficult, isn't it? Because as you say, Samaro probably doesn't come in for either Ndidi or Tielemans at this point. And you could say the same with Pats and Daka isn't going to start ahead of Jamie Vardy. So if and when they do get given a consistent run of games, it would be interesting to see how they perform in the Premier League because they do have pedigree in previous clubs. OK, final other couple of games just to go over very quickly. Brighton notched a 90th minute winner against Brentford, courtesy of Leandro Trossard. And we also saw a nil-nil between Southampton and West Ham, just to round things off. We've obviously got Everton versus Burnley later on this evening. be interesting to see how that goes purely from, if anything, just from a fantasy point of view for me, as I've got Andros Townsend in my team, which kind of quite nicely segues us into our final topic of the episode, which is fantasy football. How did it go for you guys? Was it a good week? Was it a bad week? Or what are we saying?
1: Well, like you, I'm not quite finished yet because I still have Dominic Cavot Lewin to play this weekend. You know, hopefully he might notch a couple of goals. But I'm already doing quite well this week. I think sixty-five points before Cavot Lewin plays, I think I'm on. Jeez. So not a bad sum. Definitely up there on in our league. As we've mentioned in previous podcasts, myself and Gray joined a week later than everyone else. So I'm still third bottom. But I am ahead of Grey, so just pop that one out there quickly. When you said you had sixty-five points, I was like, hang on a second. When I looked the other day, you're on thirty something, and then I completely Completely
0: forgot when we saw each other on Saturday night you were saying you had Salah as captain and then I just remembered what happened yesterday yeah. and, like, and oh.
1: um, Alexander-Arnold and two for Lukaku as well so I think the thing for me to say so far is the big guns have definitely paid off so far as I say Alexander-Arnold and defence has been a good one for me Lukaku and Fernandez and Salah those are kind of my big guns and they've all been pretty consistent so far in the early doors
2: well, I personally actually wildcarded this week because I felt my team was a bit unbalanced. Certainly the transfers on deadline day and stuff may have influenced my decision. I didn't put Ronaldo in, though, to be fair. I'm still trying to avoid that. But yeah, so far, every player has scored points in my team, other than Antonio, who obviously got sent off. I've got Demarai Gray left to play tonight. Solid week with 63, but nothing spectacular. I think everyone's done pretty well this week, so I've just kept the pace more than anything. I think the one thing i'd say is because of the changes i've made it should pay off in the weeks to come rather than just now
0: did either of you make any i know you said you'd played your wild card this week james did either of you make any big transfers that paid off in a good
1: way I haven't made any transfers yet but I think this week I'm definitely going to I think for me the big stick or twist question is Soyuncu at the start of the season I thought that should be quite a good one he's a good quality defender and Leicester are one of the better teams in the league so there should be a good number of clean sheets there but that really hasn't paid off so far so I think the question is do I kind of have patience and assume that that will come or not the one I'm going to be forced into I think is the fourth defensive position I've got Amati who didn't play this week or Simikas who doesn't look like he's going to get much game time at the moment. So I need to try and find a budget option because they're not going to give me a lot to play around with once I sell one of those. So, the big transfer I went for
2: this week, I know I wildcarded, but the differential I went for was Max Kilman. Worked out fairly well, but the reason I'm a bit disappointed was because it was a decision between Wolves defenders. And the three I was deciding about were Kilman, Cody, and Marcel. And obviously, I've picked the third best of those this week, but that is just how
0: it goes sometimes. That's interesting you brought in Kilman because I actually transferred Cody in this week and I was also having the same sort of debate over in my own head of who to bring in and it's difficult because I looked at Cody's previous seasons and he doesn't really score and it was hard to sort of, I didn't want to put Saïs in because out of the three of them he seems to be the more likely to get substituted if they are to sort of go from three to four at the back or whatever. But he came in, he got six points. I think to be fair, if you're going to bring a centre-back into fantasy football, you're probably looking at, you're hoping that six points is going to be regular They're not mm. like, to get assists or goals I think otherwise you're going for fullbacks all day aren't you? Well
2: I think the reason I was a bit tentative to go for the fullbacks to be fair is because Marcel and Aitnoori do tend to switch whereas the centre-backs at the moment seem a bit nailed on and then I think Semedo is that 0.5 higher and he didn't really justify the output, output last season so I'm not really tempted by him.
1: It's difficult with defenders. What I've tried to do is go for the cheapest one of a decent defence that I think will play consistently. So, for example, my Chelsea defender is Antonio Rudiger. I don't expect him to do a lot. I don't expect him to score goals or assist goals, but Chelsea okay. are going to keep a lot of clean sheets. And he's a relatively... I mean, he's not cheap-cheap, but for Chelsea standards, a relatively cheap option to have in there. And he's going to get just as many clean sheet points as the likes of Reese James.
0: Definitely. I've also got Rudiger, but I think Wolves is a good shout. If anyone's listening and wants a tip, Wolves are a good shout. They've got quite favourable fixtures coming up. So if you are looking for sort of an easy, I guess Cody and Kilman for that matter. I don't know how much Kilman is. I know Cody's only four and a half million. So if you're looking for quick, easy, clean sheets, Wolves could be your shout over the next couple of game weeks. All right, looking ahead to next week as well, is anyone looking at a potential player they're going to be shipping out at all? Is there anyone? I know you were saying about your defence, Tom, but James, have you got anyone that
2: you're looking at? This week, I'm actually going to bank a transfer because I've got, I've looked at my 11 already and everyone's got at least a good fixture. None of them playing each other. All of them potentially could score points. I'm sure not all of them will, but with Antonio suspended, I think it just makes sense to rest this week and then next week we'll make a decision where potentially there could be one worst fixtures, could be teams playing each other or someone could get injured. So it just makes sense from that point of view.
0: I think the dilemma I've got is I'm going to get rid of Raheem Sterling. I kind of brought him in at the start of the season (laughs) thinking that I know. I kind of brought him in at the start of the season thinking, you know what, he had a good Euros, maybe Pep's, you know, not going to be too harsh and he's not going to switch him out too often. Turns out he started the first, I think he started the first game and then he's been benched ever since. But the dilemma is, I think he's 11.1 million or 11 million at this point in time. I would love to have like a Mohamed Salah or Sadio Mane in the team because I don't actually have a Liverpool player in my team at the moment, but I can't afford them. And I don't know who else to go for because if you look at sort of players you can afford, you're probably looking at someone like, I don't know, Hume Minson or someone of that sort of price range or ilk really so i don't know if you two have got any suggestions i'm I'm all ears
1: it's difficult to say without looking at the market, if you like, because I obviously don't know how much players are.
0: Oh, don't sit on the fence, Tom. I don't um, <laughs> I think, I think
2: it's yeah. an interesting one because there's a lot of good higher range players and there's a lot of good lower range players this time. But actually the mid the mid-range ones are the ones that are the really difficult ones to pick. Maybe a Grealish. That would be my shout. He's played every game other than the first one which he came on because he was late into the squad or whatever. But I think he's got a couple of assists already. I don't know if you've got Greenwood or or Jota, because those would be the other suggestions I'd make for that sort of mm. price range. The
1: only other the only other thing I was going to suggest, depending on what the rest of your team looks like, is you could potentially level down, go for like a Mikhail Antonio or something, and then try and try and upgrade a midfielder. I don't know what your midfield not sure what your midfield looks like, but if you had a kind of decent but not incredible midfielder, you could maybe take one out and try and go for a Fernandez or a Salah or something like that. it maybe may-
2: bring Odinson
0: Edward in? Who, who knows? That is a shame. Maybe.
1: We'll have to wait and see. I'll let you know
0: next week what I end up doing. But yeah, Sterling does have to go. He's just not doing it for me, you know. And As manager, you've got to make these difficult decisions. So (laughs) we'll wait and see what happens. Anyway, I think that's a good point to end the episode. Thank you, listener, for joining us on this episode of the Lopsided Free podcast. As always, if you want to join the debate, please do so using our social medias, either on Twitter or Facebook. And until next time, stay safe and we will see you then. Bye-bye. Bye.